religious culture and the language of love has been used for generations upon generations and it's achieved in the religious culture some of the uh, as it were highest possible affirmations and statements and perhaps the most classic and familiar one would be uh, God is love and we see too that not only is that expressed as well and equally in the religious culture but also in the popular culture as well and it would be hard to pick up a uh, listen to a, a record in the contemporary world without some reference directly or indirectly to love in it and of course a wide variety of popular uh, entertainment is a, the constant seesawing of love and even more interestingly the absence of love in the complexity of human relationships so whenever we're turning our eyes and our uh, ears to religious and cultural themes we keep coming across the area of love and thus love that contributes significantly to the place of love in our life and one wonders sometimes whether or not this idea of love this feeling of love has got such an exaggerated place through the culturalization of it that perhaps we need to explore <coughs> further than that as it were explore around it and look and see whether or not there's an exaggeration of emphasis in the area of love and of course some of our immediate responses to, to the feeling of uh, love and the way that we determine that feeling is we can't have enough of it it seems we can never get receive enough of it from other people to satisfy the need and it seems that in the deep well of ourself we can also never find enough of it and we asked ourselves again and again well why aren't I loving enough why aren't I giving enough and all of that is the measurement that takes place again and again around the theme of love then we look at our our life our so-called personal life and we look at the relationships that we have uh, with each other and we ask well, what is love what is what is it to love what does it what does it mean to to love to love another human being to love an animal to love the world and it seems sometimes that one of the characteristics of this is I think th three considerations one is it seems often much much easier to uh, love the nature than love a human being and we can love the trees and the flowers and the summer sky and the long distance uh, landscape and the beautiful ocean and we can say quite easily and quite effortlessly how much we 
love, or of that, as a genuine response, expression of the response of our feeling. Sometimes, too, we notice that with uh, animals, too, whether they're pets or wild animals, it also can bring out the same kind of response, that one really can love the animals and the birds of the world. And yet, when it comes to human beings, and especially human beings who are close to us, what we mean by that, too close to us, that in that it seems that something takes place where the expression and the giving of love gets very much measured at the time by the way we think about the person. So we can experience at times a remarkable degree of intense closeness to a person and one generates inside oneself tremendous feelings of love for another and that there's an outpouring of that. It tends to fade remarkably when the person isn't all that we have cracked them up to be but there can be that impression, that stimulation, that impact. So what is it that goes on in time, in time, in relationship, in communication, and in thought, the measure of it all, that somehow sets the tone of where the love is, where it goes, who deserves it, and usually who deserves it and for how long he or she should get it. (laughs) And we become, with our distribution of love, um, so easily, in the human world, miserly. We are misers with our love. And then sometimes we we look at this and we, we see too that also it can work in other ways as well. There are the people who are reasonably close to us, partners, friends, parents, children, grandparents, grandchildren, relatives, neighbours. So there's a circle of people that you and I move in and move through. When we actually count up the number of people that we consider close to us, our responses at the level of love as we see with ourselves, varies quite considerably. And we have quite often, in that circle of people, the blood circle, and the friendship of time circle, clear determinations in a kind of hierarchical order of those who are worthy of more love and those who really we have no time for and they shouldn't get any of our attention because they've done nothing to deserve it. (laughs) and so there's this kind of spectrum of human uh, relationships which we live in and through and in that uh, of course the, the villains of our world and the saints of our world quite easily their roles can be quite interchangeable and one goes to the top of the, uh, the pile and the other is demoted because of some habit of theirs. So this goes on from day, day to day and of course perception 
perception here, the way we perceive, the way we look at people, the way the, we respond to that through the analysis, the thought world, and through the habit, the sheer habit of the way of perceiving, all influences our view of the world. Perception, the immediacy of feeling, the thought which accompanies it, and the sheer habit of our way of relating. And we get steamrolled and so identified with that, it becomes a routine way of perceiving. That routine way of perceiving is taken so, so much for granted with ourselves that we wonder, what is the love? Where is the love in all of this? The difficulty, as I mentioned earlier, in this hierarchical and um, selective way of perceiving life, perceiving other human beings, is that the very view that goes along with it is so utterly unreliable, and when we start perceiving habitually, and in a negative habitual way, the view comes up from inside of oneself, I I am not a loving person, I am a negative type, I don't really have any real love inside of me, and if I did, then I would be much closer to people, they would be much closer to me. And we seem to imagine, rather um, sadly really, we seem to imagine that love is something which is quantifiable, we imagine that love is something which is, as it were, in us or not, to a degree or not. And it's like it appears to us at times that some people seem to be so-called overflowing with love. They're like a full bucket of uh, love and it's just dripping out of the person. And some somebody um, else seems to have um, run dry and perhaps in fact they, perhaps there was a hole in their bucket to start with <laughs> and I think the idea of being filled with love is a kind of um, unfortunate uh, metaphor that we use because it leaves impressions, and therefore it leaves a kind of myth, which impressions tend to be, of, again, of quantity. And thus, sometimes we say, my very, very common thing in the last um, decade or so, my real needs are not being met. <laughs> and this one-liner is, we have, you know, etched it in a, with a, into our brain cells and we have got tremendous uh, uh, um, encouragement to repeat this and say this from others who ought to know better. Uh, <laughs> I'm resisting professions quickly here. And, <laughs> and this expression of my real needs are not being met 
What that does, I think immediately it somewhat undermines the person who believes this uh, ideology, but equally it places an undue pressure on other or another human being. And what happens when we're under pressure? What happens when somebody says to you or to me, to us, um, you are not meeting my real needs and you are not giving enough to me and that pressure starts going out. I want more of you. What happens to us? It hardly is inspirational for being <laughs> a full loving human being. And what it tends to generate in the impact of the demand in the name of love, I want this love from you, it tends to generate either flight, <laughs> one just backpedals as quick as one can <laughs> out of such pressure to be loving, or one argues back, but what about you? You're not meeting my real needs. <laughs> And so, and so there is a, a war that evolves out, out, of, out of that, or one is utterly dumbstruck and rendered mo emotionally numb by the pressure. So either we flight, we fight, or we end up feeling numbed by it. And that so easily happens, and of course it easily leads in a situation like that, that neither person is happy, the, the motion of real needs goes on, and one wonders, one wonders, can a person, can a human being, actually change through, through that kind of pressure? And is it perhaps that in a way, for love to come, that love ha has to come because it needs a love for it. It's as though with human beings it needs a kind of contact, a catalyst of love to love for love to spark. So I say, you know, l looking at the way we are thinking and the habits of the mind and the demands which go born out of, about, out of the habit, as it is said, all too often we tend to ask and demand and at a more subtle level expect too much from each other. <coughs> we expect in such a way that sometimes we want from another what we actually cannot give ourselves. We say, well, I haven't got this, but I expect you to provide that for me. And human beings, in the nature of love, there's a certain, I think, finiteness about it. That love doesn't exist exclusively, and, sorry, love doesn't ex exist utterly unexclusively. That it is influenced, the, the, the potency of it, the sense of it, the feeling of it, the warmth of it, the comradeship of it, the expression of it, of the manifestation, whether it's appreciation, whether it's affection, whether it's gratitude, whether it's compassion, whether it's generosity, kindness, all different, as it were, modes of love. I say all, the, all of this love has with, within it has a defined factor to it.
And I think what needs to be really put aside in, a, in directly looking into life is some kind of ideology which you and I have perhaps been burdened with for generations in which we imagine love is infinite. Love is in infinite. And this, I think, is a, it, to me, that it, it, has the, it has more of ideology to it uh, rather than in the nature of life. And so sometimes in, in religion itself, religion elevates, loves to elevate, loves to exaggerate. It's part of religion. It's uh, one of the most exaggerated forms of existence. And this exaggeration which takes place there means that it becomes a metaphysical. Metaphysical to me means, I, I don't understand what the word means, but it's something somewhat unrelated to human experience. <laughs> That's what I call metaphysical. And this metaphysical concept, this metaphysical idea of love, this elevation of love into infinite realms, into immeasurable realms, into the beyond realms, doesn't seem to be in accordance with human life. Therefore, it becomes a theory. To me, it becomes an abstraction, an ideology. And I say, let's put love into life. Let's put it into, into the actuality of genuine human experience. And therefore, I say, the transcendence of love rather than the imagination of trying to be this eternally, forever, happy, loving, kind, compassionate, godly human being. And one says, I, I would say to this, if one keeps it out of the metaphysical realms into the human realms, has one honestly, honestly ever met a person on this earth who was dwelling in infinite love? Has one ever met? Met. Not what you read in those wretched news magazines like Time and Newsweek, but I'm <laughs> actually met. And the Buddha gave a very valuable criteria in all, all of this, and one which I think is uh, well, well worth while. And that is that in a situation of being with a person who one may connect with, who one may regard as a compassionate person, a person with full of love, that the two things which are quite necessary, that one has to be with that person for a long period of time, for a long, very important, this criteria, one has to be the person a long period of time through a whole variety of different life situations, have a broad view. The second uh, equally significant criteria for this is that the, how is the person in the time of difficulty? How, is the, how does the person deal with difficulty? And what way in that is the person influenced and affected by those circumstances? It, what way is their love affected, in other words? And what has happened in this, in this distortion of love, in, and one expression of it that can and does take place, 
Of course, in religious life is devotional love. And what we have seen recently, both in the United States and, and elsewhere, but to some degree it would appear perhaps even more noticeably in the culture here, is for quite a few years the elevation of particular individuals who, who received a tremendous outpouring of love towards them because of their religious uh, role, because of their power, their charisma, and, uh, and that whole mode of awe in relationship, and the love which went along with it, and there was no transcendence of that love. And when that love is there with other things, other with the needs and with the perceptions and with the projections, when all that goes into the package with love, then that love is very vulnerable. And there are people in spiritual life, in religious life, in New Age movements, in, from Eastern teachings and so on and so forth, who have been severely hurt severely hurt because of the dynamics which take place in which there was love but all the package went with it but there wasn't wisdom there wasn't wisdom with it so as, as I say I feel it's important in these areas to actually put uh, to explain appreciate and acknowledge love, to be in, in touch with those, the warm gestures and the manifestations of that, of course, but not to exaggerate it in the scheme of things, not to exaggerate it. So in the tradition, Buddhist tradition, of course, one of its great uh, strengths, I think, and something very significant <coughs> in it, it has and continues to uh, mention and refer to the practice, in a way, of the application of love, the application of kindness. When you arrived here at the center, you saw the sign on the door, metta. Metta means, it means deep friendship towards all beings. This is what metta is, deep friendship. Often translated as loving, loving kindness and uh, as love, and it's that expression there, the deep friendship towards all forms of life. And then there are various practices which help to draw that out, to, to bring that out. So some of you would have seen a small sign on the notice board there, and one traditional classic st statement is to say, um, may all beings, may I and others, uh, be free from hate, free from greed, free from <coughs> negativity, free from selfishness, may I, may others, live in kindness, live in friendship. And those statements of the expression of those really make a difference. They genuinely make a difference to heart feelings. And so sometimes when a person comes and says to, says to me, uh, oh, I'm having a difficult time in my marriage, in my, with my partner, or with my children, or friends, or workplace, or whatever, you know, has one forgotten the practices of loving-kindness? Has one forgotten the practices of deep friendship towards all beings? Is one re really remembering all of that 
so that there is some actual manifestation within the finiteness of love, of its place in the scheme of things, so that that is actualized as a living practice, so that we don't live in the habit of memory and projection. The purpose of deep friendship meditations is that we don't live in the habit of projection and memory. And we can see afresh, and those practices as a heart-opening practices do actually contribute to that. And I would still say to all of that, that isn't transcendence of love, but it's certainly helpful. <laughs> Just recently I was speaking with a, a uh, teacher, a spiritual uh, teacher, who has a number of uh, followers, and in the uh, conversation uh, with him, I, I um, commented, I said, I, uh, this is a teacher um, here in the uh, Western Paradise, I s- s- um, said to this, per- this uh, person that he has uh, the reputation for being uh, uh, such in the relationship and the communication of uh, intimidating people. And again, sometimes, and of course I, I and others are also times are no exception to this, that in any exploration and, some, and in, inquiry or whatever, one is, in, there's the, the quest, there's the search for the, for the truth, the search for realize, realization, and there's that opportunity which the living present really makes available to us. And in that dynamic, in that catalyst between an, two human beings or a group of human beings, there's a real possibility of discovery right on the spot. And that's the wonderful thing about the teachings. However, in this conversation with this particular uh, uh, person, I said, and I think it's uh, uh, in in the discussion, something which we were talking about, and I said, I think, I said, from the feedback I get, you have a reputation for in, intimidating too many people. And um, what happens in, when you intimidate people, the emotional response to feeling under pressure and intimidated is, uh, is one of fear and awe. Feeling awe, the power of this person, the authority of this person. And, but underlying that is, is fear and awe and fear very, very uh, like two sides of the same coin. And I said, I don't think there is any real hope of people being genuinely transformed, genuinely transformed, if the relationship is bound up with awe and fear. Because I think it perpetuates many, many, many problems, and therefore it has to be dissolved. And so I would still say, and I said again and again, I think transformation comes out, actually comes out of awareness and out of insight and out of a kindness which is born out of that. So I say the intimations of the transcendence of love, the transcendence of deep friendship and kindness with all of its relative values in the world, I think the deep intimations of its transcendence come in a realization 
firstly of its limitations, in human terms its limitations, and the sense of something greater than the human framework. Something greater than the human framework. And I think there is so much mythology wrapped up and wrapped around love and all the symbols and the gestures and the culturalizations and all of that packaging that goes on. I think sometimes love in, in, in our expectations on ourselves especially easily becomes a hindrance. So I say let's, let's, let's not be so concerned about being so loving. Let's not be so concerned about being such kind, nice people so that we can be a little bit more ruthless with ourselves in our investigations to begin to really see immediately the transcendence of love. About uh, um, two or three years ago, I went to see one of my two uh, old uh, teachers, and now, of course, they are um, very, very old. Uh, one is um, Ajahn Buddhadasa of Wat Suen Mok in the south of Thailand, and the other is Ajahn Damodaro. Ajahn Buddhadasa is uh, 84 years of age, coming up to 85 in a few weeks' time. He ordained when he was uh, 20. He once told me, he, made, he, comment, he commented that he went to take an uh, ordination, as is customary in Thailand, for a short period of uh, three months because uh, uh, he was engaged to be married. At the end of that three-month period, he went to his fiancée and he said to his fiancée, um, I'm sorry, I uh, can't uh, marry you, uh, I've married the Buddha instead. And from the last 64 years, he's been uh, a monk. And in this monastery in the south of uh, Thailand, at Chaya, a monastery without walls, some 200 acres or more of uh, forest there. And in the initial period there, while being there, he just lived in solitude. And in this period of time, he would go on the begging round, as is customary in Thailand. And through, through that period of time, people began to know of him. That began to increase the number of people that came to see him, and the numbers now must be a couple of hundred thousand people. So he's still in the same spot there in the forest, and these coach loads of Thai pilgrims come to see him. So I met with him, and I made a taped interview with him, it was one of actually quite a number of different ones I did, some uh, 30 of them all together. Small uh, London publisher, publisher put them into a small volume, one about half of them, and then uh, two or three months ago published a second small volume under the title of uh, Freedom of the Spirit. And in that one is with Buddha Dasa, and I talked to him and asked him a little bit about basically about the theme we are talking about uh, uh, this evening. Uh, 
He says, um, I ask him about uh, um, religion. There, I say, I say uh, it's in part of the way through the interview. There are a growing number of people who are unhappy with property, power, and possession, but they cannot see an alternative to that. They are also unhappy with religion. Ajahn Buddhadasa. The question, what is religion, is an important one. I like to use an old definition of religion. Religion is observation and right conduct in order to uh, bind a human being to the supreme being, the su sorry, the supreme thing. The, su the supreme thing can be described as God or Nirvana, but now religion is full of ceremony and superstition. It is the religion of the fool, so it is not true religion. True religion is the same everywhere. In Christianity, there is an important sentence at the beginning of the Bible. We must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That means we must not, not attach to good and evil and discriminate in that way. There is this very high level of teaching in Christianity, but today Christianity has forgotten that instruction. Christopher, I first came to see you 18 years ago and initially spent two or three weeks here. I said to you that I wanted to become a monk, and you said, quote, Anybody who changes their religion does so because they haven't understood their own. Would you still say the same, Ajahn Buddhadasa? The desire to change one's religion is ignorance at work. <laughs> By means of wisdom, one will change oneself. Following the steps of spiritual training, of virtuous action, meditation and wisdom, this is called sikar in the Pali language. It means look inside, see inside and know inside. It is to know yourself within, to know what is what. It is to know this I and to know what is this problem of I, the problems of life. The true contentment is realizing that self is truly not self. Self is not self already. Christopher, this faith and wisdom you speak of seems to be of a different order. Often in religion, faith seems to be directed towards a God out there or as a faith in the guru or a methodology. What you seem to be saying is that faith is present when we look within. Ajahn Buddhadasa, yes, faith inside. Look inside, see inside, know inside. Know what is simply mental, emotional, physical activity and know it just as that. See into the unwholesome activities of the mind. See into suffering. Christopher, faith and these disciplines contribute to wisdom? When we see and know what is what, then there is wisdom. Wisdom is to know things directly and to know what to do and what not to do. What is especially important is to know this elusive self. The self is not to be regarded as a real self. Only ignorance makes it a real self. There is only body and mind observation at work and any aspect of the human process can do its duty without self, without I. There is no need to believe in self or have a self. Every aspect of mind-body is not self, not I. Christopher, does love and compassion come naturally when every aspect of life is seen to be void of self? Adam Buddhadasa. 
you have to know that even in love and compassion and compassion there can be self. There is the self who is the giver and there is the self who is the receiver. There may be love and compassion but this is not the supreme instruction, not the supreme thing. Love and compassion alone does not give emancipation or liberation. Christopher, you have lived in this spot for nearly 50 years. There was only the forest when you came and today this enormous monastery without walls has built up around you while you have been sitting here. <coughs> Why do you choose to give your life and your time to receiving countless numbers of people and teaching them Dharma? What allows you to do this? You could have gone into the forest and never seen anybody. You could have lived as a recluse, but you have chosen to live and welcome all these people. Ajahn Buddhadasa. By means of wisdom, not by means of attachment to self. It is to know what to do and what not to do. Christopher. But couldn't some other monk say, by means of wisdom, I choose to live in solitude? Your life has been available for people to come and see you. Ajahn Buddhadasa laughing, it's convenience only. <laughs> some friends or some people come for some instruction. Christopher, isn't that love and compassion? Ajahn Buddhadasa, one does not have to attach oneself to love and compassion. This is simply duty through wisdom. Christopher, Finally, one of the criticisms of Buddhism that we can spend so much time engaged in looking within that we forget about nuclear bombs. We forget about the destructions of the rainforest and poverty and pain elsewhere. Buddhadasa, if we do not see the reality of the mind-body, we cannot stop these false and harmful views, harmful thinking and ignorance. We then cannot know the right way of living. We become too much attached to good and evil. Don't use the word detached. To be detached is, a, is another kind of attachment. It is to be detached from one thing by means of another attachment. This only makes new problems. And the Buddha Tarsuk then, then goes on and insisting, as he does and does again, with regard to situations, and then he speaks of... <coughs> Uh, circumstances in, in which I recall that there was a tropical rainforest being destroyed there to make, make way of a dam. And I asked him, what's the right thing to do? The dam is supposed to help the people. The tropical rainforest is to protect the tropical rainforest. What's wisdom through duty? And I tried as much as I could to put him on the spot. I said to him, this seems to be an issue of right conduct. What is your response? Do we have a dam or do we protect the rainforest? Ajahn Buddhadasa, not correct. This is surplus knowledge. Christopher, surplus knowledge? Question? <laughs> <laughs> Material progress will destroy everything. They think they are doing good but it is selfishness of human beings. Selfishness destroys sentient beings through the support of ignorance. The problem is inside, so that, that, that is where we have to look. The selfishness, the suffering, the cause of suffering, and the cessation of it is within. Christopher, um, how do you feel about all this destruction which is taking place on the earth? 
no need to be unhappy or happy. We do our duty by means of wisdom and abide in suchness, not in good and evil, not in positive and negative thinking, so that our friends have a free life, an emancipated life, a liberated life. May all our friends in the world know this. I think that the teachings there of Buddha Dasa and teachings which have a long-standing spirit to them, that even in that which we call love and that which we love, how easily, and as we notice, our I and our my, our self, get embroiled in that, and with the embroiling of self with that, then there comes with that identification and I says, what is the transcendence to all of this? Can we live with wisdom in the face of circumstances? And from that wisdom, the outpouring of that is duty. One does it because that's what one does. One engages because that's what one does, one engages. And one then senses the emancipation, the freedom in which the construction of the human being with all the virtuous elements of the human being, the love, the kindness, the compassion, and all the manifestation of that, all of that is seen in its appreciation, seen in its unfoldment. But our freedom in life transcends all of that. The wisdom of our being transcends all of that. So instead of thinking of love as the supreme thing, and all the eye that goes with it. Let that too fall into the place of things. Let that too rest in the suchness of things. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings abide in suchness. <coughs> Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.